The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In a country divided by politics, we look for common ground. The Super Bowl, maybe, and the family and food at Thanksgiving. In the arts, my generation could once come together around Prince or Bruce Springsteen. And for a while it was Beyonce, and maybe now it's Taylor Swift or Kendrick Lamar. Ice cream has a high approval rating. We might think that Shakespeare would be such a figure, as unimpeachable as Mozart or Mr. Rogers. If anything, we might say, Shakespeare is too often ignored. If only more people would read his plays or see them performed, we might finally all get along. And yet, and yet, this dream is inconsistent with what we've seen in the past in two ways. First, Shakespeare hasn't been ignored by the Rube Americans. He's been, at times, very prominent, up there with the Bible in cultural and social relevance. And second, according to Shakespeare scholar James Shapiro, we can see that for all the camaraderie that Shakespeare builds, there is also contestation. As much as many want to believe in the universality of Shakespeare's plays, Shapiro writes, it is more accurate to say that while they may be read by almost everyone, we often disagree about what they mean and how they ought to be staged. Shapiro has drilled down into various eras in American history, bringing up eight core samples for analysis. What he finds in every case, whether it's miscegenation in 1833 or left versus right in 2017, through manifest destiny and class warfare and assassination and immigration and marriage, adultery, and same-sex love, is that throughout the decades and centuries on topics of the deepest concern and that raised the bitterest of battles, Shakespeare was there too, shining light and exposing shadows as only his works can. James Shapiro on Shakespeare in a Divided America, today on the History of Literature. Okay. Hello, everyone. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. We've got a great episode for you today. My apologies to those of you who are expecting the female Quixote. Our production schedule has changed and it's all connected to our newsletter. For those of you who haven't signed up for that yet, Emma is working her heart out on it. So please do sign up at our website, historyofliterature.com. You will make her day. But I'm not going to apologize too much because... The female Quixote, forgotten woman of literature number seven in our series, Charlotte Lennox, I'm talking about, the author of The Female Quixote and some Shakespeare criticism herself, some pioneering criticism. She'll be coming up in another week or two. We will deliver that soon. I've yet more travel on my horizon to Denver this time, so I'm busy beavering it, but it will all get done and we'll have that episode for you shortly. And I'm definitely not going to apologize for what we have as a substitute. We're bringing you a little bit early. Today's guest, a giant in the field of Shakespeare studies. James Shapiro has been doing this a long time and at the highest of levels. We are all in his debt, and I'm looking forward to sharing my conversation that I had with him with you. But first, We continue our traipsing through the poems of Emily Dickinson, as selected for us by Helen Vendler in her anthology, Dickinson Selected Poems. We jump from number 138 to 165 today. This is a tricky poem. (laughs) One of the more complex ones we've looked at. It starts with something Dickinson has never seen. Writing from her vantage point in her quiet life in New England, Volcanoes. But she's read her Keats, and she's learned her history of Vesuvius and Pompeii, and she can imagine a couple of other things besides how volcanoes can be like humans, like human faces, quiet on the surface, but smoldering within, and what it's like to keep that energy and heat submerged until it erupts, if it ever does, and how destructive 
it can possibly be, but also what happens if it doesn't do that destruction. So let's hear the poem. It's five stanzas of four lines each, all short, in Dickinson's customary way. Number 165. I have never seen volcanoes, but when travelers tell how those old phlegmatic mountains, usually so still, bear within appalling ordnance, fire and smoke and gun, taking villages for breakfast and appalling men. Okay, let's pause there. Two stanzas. We really don't have much difficulty with these. It's set up like a story. Story about the the volcanoes and here's the here's the key. Here's what's getting us ready for the next three stanzas. Getting us ready for the pivot. But right? When travelers, I haven't seen volcanoes, but I've heard people talk about them. But when I hear people talk about them, that's what she says. When I hear people talk about them, how they stay still, but they have this arsenal within them, a whole ammo dump of ordnance, fire, smoke, and gun, capable of taking villages for breakfast. We know what volcanoes can do. She calls the ordnance appalling. And then she says... It appalls men. Interesting double use of appalling there, both an adjective and a verb. So she's saying, when, I've, when I hear about all this, dot, 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 we know she's about to shift into what it makes her think about. And indeed, this is what happens in the next stanza. Let's go back to the poem. If the stillness is volcanic in the human face, when upon a pain titanic, features keep their place... Here she's inspired by Keats, Vendler argues. Vendler says that Dickinson has been reading Keats's Hyperion, in which vanquished and fallen titans are convulsed with pain, a volcanic convulsion, he says. He describes how these titans struggle to keep their clenched teeth still clenched and their limbs locked up like veins of metal, cramped and screwed. A pain titanic, Dickinson, relates the human face not reflecting it like the calm exterior of the mountain while the lava boils within. That's her jump from the volcanoes to the humans. And then the final two stanzas kind of brings us home with a, <laughs> with a leap as well. Okay, fourth stanza. If at length, the smoldering anguish will not overcome, and the palpitating vineyard in the dust be thrown. What happens to volcanoes that don't erupt? What if you never get that release and that destruction? What if the face remains still forever, never releasing that pain within, Pain of, what What would it be in a human? Pain of desire, maybe, or frustrated hopes, or nightmarish trauma, or fury at the world, or someone in it. The pains of jealousy, the pains of resentment, the pains that you know as well as I do. Well, what then? If the vineyards of a place like Pompeii don't end up covered in ash destroyed by our internal pain, and the mountain stays calm, and if we as humans keep all that struggle suppressed, what then? What then? We have one more stanza, the fifth and final stanza. That's either going to tell us what's going to happen, or it's not, right? There are two ways to go here at this point. One way is to say, well, if X never happens, then Y will happen instead. Another way is to double down and say, what if X never happens? And here's something else that won't happen either. What if there's X in the fourth stanza plus more X in the fifth stanza? And we will leave the Y to you in your imagination. That's maybe a little closer to what Dickinson, but Dickinson, I think, is giving us a third option. Let's hear how she handles it. Fifth stanza. 
if some loving antiquary on resumption morn will not cry with joy, Pompeii, to the hills return. There it is. It's hard to believe she does all this in 30-some words. She doesn't say, if we never erupt, or if our pain stays within, then why will happen? And she also doesn't really say, what if we never erupt? And here are a couple of different ways to say that. She jumps right to resumption morn, the moment when the dead shall rise, when people and souls shall ascend into heaven. Emily had complicated feelings about resumption morn because she had doubts. Religious doubts. Now, this is this is this poem is pushing me to my limits here. <laughs> Let me try to unpack it. There's so much stuff to balance against so much other stuff. So here we are in the fifth chapter. We've been talking about volcanoes. We've compared it to a human face and the smoldering fury within, the smoldering energy within a human that's been stifled. And we hear, well, what if that doesn't erupt? And then suddenly we get some loving antiquary. On resumption more. Who's a loving antiquary? I'm going to posit that this is meant to conjure up an old person who was in love. And let's and in fact, let's say that he erupted with it. He was not a suppressed antiquary. He was a loving antiquary. Maybe the loving was when he was younger. Maybe that's her way of saying that he erupted. Right? Now he's older, an old man. He's died. And maybe he died some time ago, having leveled the city of Pompeii with the lava and ash within him. He's destroyed whole villages for breakfast. This person could also be a woman, I guess. Maybe I should be using she. What does such a volcano of a person have to look forward to on resumption morn? The undoing of all the destruction that she set forth, that she caused to happen in life. Right? Such a person who, who erupted and destroyed whole villages by erupting, she would be calling out Pompeii with joy. She'd cry, let's return to your hills, Pompeii. But this won't happen, will it? Because in the fourth stanza, we hear that the smoldering anguish never did erupt. It was kept within. That's what she's saying. What if at length we don't destroy the, the vineyard, we don't throw the palpitating vineyard into the dust with a smoldering anger, anguish, never overcomes that, that still face, that calm mountain. If that never happens, then we also won't have the person ascending into heaven who is delighted to see undestroyed village. Think about where Dickinson has taken us in this brief but eventful ride. It's like a roller coaster that starts slow, ascends, then descends and returns home back to where you started, except instead of returning to the starting place, it just sails off into the ether. <laughs> You're like a volcano, dear reader or dear listener. You keep your pain within. What happens if you don't let it out? You won't destroy the village below you. Maybe that's your loved ones. Maybe it's some innocent and unsuspecting others. Your pain never comes out. And then, then you won't have that moment when you ascend to heaven and all that destruction will be erased. And you'll feel the joy of returning to that pre-eruption paradise. So... Keep it within. No fire and hell in life. No blessed reversion in heaven. If and if. Astonishing. Dickinson is nine moves ahead of me on the chessboard. Our pieces are in place in their two tight rows. We're at the starting point. Emily moves her pawn forward a single square, and I just tip over my king, resigning. <laughs> because I know... She's got me beat. That's poem 165. James Shapiro will take us through Shakespeare throughout the ages 
after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is James Shapiro, who is a professor of English and comparative literature at Columbia University, where he has taught since 1985. He's also served on the board of directors of the Royal Shakespeare Company and as the Shakespeare Scholar-in-Residence at the Public Theater in New York City. He's written several award-winning books on Shakespeare, including the recent The Year of Lear, Shakespeare in 1606. And he's here today to discuss his book, Shakespeare in a Divided America, what his plays tell us about our past and future. James Shapiro, welcome to the History of Literature. Delighted to be with you today. So we generally think of American political rhetoric as being dominated by empty platitudes, and maybe now and then somebody quotes the Bible or Abraham Lincoln, but you've found numerous instances where Americans have drawn upon Shakespeare to help them wrestle with the issues of the day. Should I be as surprised by this as I am? Probably not. Mm. Uh, historians don't look to the arts, for the most part, to describe the trajectory of this country. And going back to my high school days, I don't think anybody ever mentioned the ways in which Shakespeare, in a way, shaped the thinking of presidents and politicians over mm. the past 200 years or so. But if you go back and look at it, as I've done it, it offers a, a kind of different story of our nation's history. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's start in the early years. How was Shakespeare used by politicians and pundits before the Revolutionary War? That's a really good question. And I would say that's one of the, the least studied issues in Shakespeare and in American political history. Mm. We know that there were parodies of to be or not to be from Hamlet uh, on both sides of the revolutionary divide uh, before 1776. We know that a production of Coriolanus up in New Hampshire kind of used the play to make statements about the military and its preparedness at that time. But in truth, Shakespeare had not yet saturated the nation's, if you will, public conversation. Mm. There are different pieces that are interesting. There was the so-called Cherokee Othello down in Virginia, in which Native Americans were invited by the colonists to see one of the earliest productions of Shakespeare in the country to help in their negotiations with those Native Americans. And there was a slave ship sailing from Newport, Rhode Island, named the Othello, which sailed off to Africa to pick up slaves. Mm. Why anybody would name a slave ship a fellow is beyond me, but all these things help illuminate the kind of nooks and crannies of the cultural imagination at that time. Mm. And then things really seem to have taken off in the early 19th century 
when Shakespeare became popular, what was behind that? How did how did this happen? Were people reading them, watching performances, or what what happened to ignite the interest in Shakespeare in America in the 19th century? In a number of states, I'm thinking of Quaker Pennsylvania and pretty severe Protestant Massachusetts, playgoing was not allowed. Mm. It was different in New York. It was different in, say, the South and Virginia and elsewhere. So the staging of the plays only took place gradually and mostly began with touring British actors coming to America. It took a while to establish really great American actors. People were reading Shakespeare, but Shakespeare was mostly read in books that would pull out and offer as examples great speeches from literature. Mm. So, for example, young Abe Lincoln in his log cabin in the Midwest picked up a book that his stepmother had brought with her that had 20 selections of Shakespeare and more or less had them tattooed inside his skull for the rest of his life. And he would recite these every chance he got. So that was the way in which for the non, if you will, literate and Harvard trained classes of the day, Shakespeare entered the culture. For those uh, in the upper echelon, presidents like John Adams and his son, John Quincy Adams, Shakespeare was very important for them in figuring out some of the, the key political issues of the day. John Adams famously wrote a letter to his son, John Quincy Adams, in 1805, saying, I'm reading all of Shakespeare's histories, because if you want to know what is potentially dangerous and wrong with the political system the Founding Fathers have created, you'll find it in the backbiting and treachery and disloyalties of Shakespeare's histories. Mm. And, his, and his son, John Quincy Adams, would famously write an essay on the character of Desdemona, and I write about this in, in the book at length, in which he struggles with the question of a white woman desiring a black man. And, and I should say that John Quincy Adams, as far as the history books are concerned, is one of the great abolitionists of his day fighting slavery tooth and nail, even after leaving the presidency, re-entering Congress in order to continue that fight. Yet this was a man who would write that Desdemona in marrying a fellow and being strangled by her got what she deserved. Mm. So were they looking, I mean, I'm thinking of plays like Julius Caesar or or the Henry plays or, or Richard, where it sort of looks at factions and power and power struggles and so on. But but there's also, as you're kind of suggesting here, the psychology of the characters and sort of saying, well, here's what we may need to prepare for with whether it's a, a king or a president, anybody who is taking power, this is what might come to their mind, or this is what human nature being what it is might lead them to do. That's a, that's a really good question and keen insight. You can find Shakespeare being quoted in congressional debates over Manifest Destiny and the Mexican-American War. You will find critics using him in the political way that you describe. As far as productions were concerned, they were primarily star vehicles. And it wouldn't be until, let's say, the mid to late 19th century, around the time of the Civil War, that productions began to lean heavily into politically charged readings of Shakespeare. So it took a while for, if you will, the saturation of Shakespeare in 19th century culture to turn into something that would lead to politically charged productions. Mm, right. So it it almost seems like, I mean, whenever you're quoting something, we kind of have a suspicion that maybe you're quoting it just to show off or just to, 
to uh, end an argument by citing an, an authority like the Bible or or Shakespeare as if that person or that text has the last word and so on. But what I'm gathering from reading your book is that there was not just a sense of, well, I'll put myself in this rarefied company by showing my education and so on, by having a good Shakespeare quote at the ready, but they were actually using Shakespeare to wrestle with issues and to to try to to advance an argument or come to grips with what they thought. I mean, it seems like Abraham Lincoln in that log cabin was reading Shakespeare to help him make sense of the world in some sense. That's absolutely right. And not only make sense of the world, but in his case, make sense of the enormous guilt he experienced watching under his presidency 700,000 Americans on both sides of the Civil War die. And, you know, on, on the pages of that book he picked up from his stepmom were facing page passages from Hamlet. On the left-hand side of that open page was the famous to be or not to be soliloquy. And on the right-hand side was Claudius who kills Hamlet's father and marries his mother and famously is guilt-stricken about it, gives a terrific soliloquy midway through the play, Oh, My Offense is Rank. And it's about fraternal murder. And Lincoln was sure this was better than to be or not to be, which everybody was praising. And it was to that speech that he gravitated again and again. And I should say that we now think, and I picked this up from your question, that Shakespeare is kind of erudite, learned stuff. Not in the 19th century. He was common property in the 19th century. It wasn't highbrow. And that meant when a lot of soldiers from the North and the South, the Union and the Confederacy, would write letters home, you would find snippets of Shakespeare quoted, not to show off, but because Shakespeare had explored extremes of emotion, extremes of violence. And as these young, for the most part, men were encountering things that they had never experienced in this brutal civil war, Shakespeare helped them put words to what they were experiencing. Mm. And we might find young people who who chafe a little bit at, at Shakespeare in the language, but for a populace that was steeped in the rhetoric of the King James Bible, uh, it probably felt like kind of a close cousin to that. And and it was. Uh, the Bible and Shakespeare's plays, the King James Bible, are written at the same moment in England, so that the sounds of Shakespeare can become a secular scripture mm. for America. And just this week, a half dozen friends shared a newspaper or online story from Florida that schools are cutting back on Shakespeare's plays because the language is difficult, our body and the rest. And it just is so disheartening that far less well-educated 19th century Americans, farmers, laborers, immigrants, could own Shakespeare. And we're at the moment where, for some school boards, he's being thrown overboard. Mm -hmm. You feel this with teachers in middle school and high school, that they almost feel like the attention span is so limited, and Shakespeare has such a, a reputation of being medicine that's good for you and so on, that they almost have to sell it by saying, you know, it's like the way people try to sell Chaucer, where they say, no, actually, you, you guys are going to like this because it's it's actually, it's kind of subversive and, and there's a lot of violence in it or there's, it's it's a little smutty or, you know, like it, it's sort of, it's taking away something that, that, a tool in the tool belt of the teachers who are trying to keep their classes interest. Once you have to say, this joke's going to be funny. Yeah, right. <laughs> Right. Uh, I would say instead that Shakespeare is a drug and mm. it can give you as big a high as any other drug without the dangerous side effects of a fentanyl and heroin. But it has to be taught in the right way. We have to invest in training teachers who are under trained 
to bring this to young people who, as you rightly say, have really shortened attention spans, and also to help make it clear that this stuff speaks directly to their experience, which means choosing the right plays and steering into the headwinds of controversy, which in an America experience in culture wars is going to bring resistance and for some alarm. Mm-hmm. Well, here's another tip for pedagogy for teachers who have the freedom to be a little bit creative in how they're designing their courses is your book where you've chosen eight defining moments in American history and how Shakespeare played a role in, in those debates. But I'm wondering I mean, my favorite history class in college was one where we studied the history by reading literature from that period. And I'm wondering, does your book, uh, does it tell us more about Shakespeare or does it tell us more about the political history? Or would you say that it, it can do both? I would say that the two are completely interwoven. Mm-hmm. And we do well to remember that democracy and theater were twin born in in ancient Greece. And you can't have a healthy democracy without a healthy theatrical culture. And you can't have a healthy theatrical culture if you're not living in a democracy. And that is apparent from examples all over the world today. I would say that for those interested in sticking a toe into the waters of how Shakespeare might illuminate our past. They might begin with a chapter on 1865, in which John Wilkes Booth, who was one of the the leading Shakespeare actors of his day, he belonged to a family in which his father was a Shakespeare star, his older brothers were Shakespeare stars, and he was a Shakespeare star who was intent on assassinating Abraham Lincoln, who, as I suggested earlier, was as into Shakespeare as Booth himself was. So here you had two people who were immersed in Shakespeare, for whom Shakespeare was the defining figure, cultural figure, literary figure in their lives, but they read him in opposite ways. So when Booth read Julius Caesar, he was sure that this was a play that justified his assassination of a man who would be tyrant, Abraham Lincoln. And there's just great irony in how differently these two, if you will, Shakespeare aficionados read the plays. And in this case, I don't want to blame Shakespeare for Lincoln's assassination, but it was an integral part of it. And in the The days after assassinating the president while he was on the run, Booth again and again quotes from Shakespeare trying to justify his uh, actions in a little diary that he kept. Mm -hmm. So that's a good example. And for those who want something a little more daring, I would say look at the chapter from 1845 on Manifest Destiny. Manifest Destiny was this movement to expand the reach of the United States all the way to California, into Texas, and maybe Mexico. And it was opposed by those nervous about turning the United States into an empire. And that chapter turns on two individuals. One was Ulysses S. Grant, who was sent with 4,000 other soldiers to Corpus Christi, Texas, to provoke and invade Mexico and essentially occupy and take over Texas and make it one of the United States. And while these soldiers were waiting to be sent into battle, the officers knew that they were drinking and and fighting and carousing. So they ordered them in to build a theater. Mm. The officers themselves, all men decided they would act out a play and the play that they chose to act out on the eve of the Civil War in many ways, was a fellow. And they just couldn't find a woman to play Desdemona. First, they picked General Longstreet or 
soon to be General Longstreet. He was a, uh, a lesser officer at that time. But he was a football player, a big, burly guy, just looked wrong for the woman's part. So they hit on this girlish young officer who looked, they said, great in a dress. And that was Ulysses S. Grant, who rehearsed the part of Desdemona. And I suppose for the rest of his life, when he led the Union forces and later became president of the United States, was able to see the world through the eyes and, if you will, dress of a young woman who desired a black man. And this is the sort of story that uh, I'm keen on telling and putting into the conversation about the more complicated ways in which our nation took shape. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with some more of these eras that you chose. Okay, we're back. Professor Shapiro, when you were selecting these, and you have uh, eight of them, I think, did you have to turn down a few possibilities? I'm wondering if if certain works like Julius Caesar or Henry V would have come up so frequently that that you would have repeated yourself and, and so on. Was it difficult to select the eras that you did? That's a good question. I like digging down and doing core samples from history. And I wanted to include something from every, if you will, generation of mm-hmm. American as Shakespeare swung into prominence in different ways, whether the issue was class warfare or immigration or marriage or the division between the left and right. So I tried to, and I should say that Shakespeare may have written 35 to 40 plays. But in America, it's really just a half dozen. Mm. It's Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, Richard III, Hamlet, King Lear, and Othello. Maybe more recently, The Merchant of Venice and The Tempest of Thought. But it's a pretty small mini-canon within that canon. So I wanted to focus on works that really spoke to those issues as directly as possible. And yeah, I did have to leave out stuff, including plays that I love, Henry V, and even situations that I thought Shakespeare was played a major role in. I'll, I'll give you one example. In the late 1890s, in 1895, there was a railway strike. The Pullman Railway had tremendous control in the United States and uh, sought to uh, break up a union strike at that time. And in fact, it became nationalized and the president called in troops to to break up that strike. And one of the individuals who responded to this was Jane Adams, who was a great social reformer. She lived in Chicago. She was up across Chicago. Her Her dad knew all the leading figures in this controversy. And she wrote one of the most brilliant essays on Shakespeare that any American has ever written called A Modern Lear. And in it, she writes about how Pullman, who was opposed to his workers, should have learned the lessons of Shakespeare, should have read Lear more carefully and saw the bloody Pullman strike as what she called a modern Lear. I would have loved to have written about that. Mm. The book was getting to be more than a few hundred pages, and I didn't want to hit the reader over the head with too many recurring examples. But had I added a chapter, it would have been on Jane Addams and her essay, A Modern Lear. Mm. Right. Okay. So let's start with uh, miscegenation in 1833. How did Shakespeare play a role in the debates that were ongoing at the time? Yeah, I called the chapter miscegenation. I might have called it amalgamation, which was the word 
used at the time for interracial marriage or union. And the more I kept digging, the more I found. And mm. at the heart of that chapter is an account of the what's arguably the worst dinner party in history, where <laughs> the aging former president, John Quincy Adams, is sat next to a superstar actor of the day, Fanny Kemble. And he spends the evening mansplaining Shakespeare to one of the great Shakespeare actors of the day. And she just can't believe what he is saying, <laughs> including what I mentioned earlier, that Desdemona in marrying Othello got what she deserved. And he's using the N-word at this dinner conversation. And this is, you know, Boston Brahmin table companions. And I was just dumbfounded while reading this. And she kind of published a diary alluding to this a few years later. And he, so outraged and defensive, wrote uh, a pair of essays, again, underscoring why miscegenation was unnatural. So there's a footnote to this. Poor Fanny Campbell left the stage, married the wrong man who was a Philadelphian who became uh, one of the largest slaveholders in Georgia. And she suddenly, herself an abolitionist, found herself as a slave mistress in Georgia and looks at that experience through the lens of Shakespeare and Othello. So... When you dig down a little deeper, you find in almost every direction you turn, Shakespeare is there. Mm, right. And one that has been important in the history of America is class. And 1849, you talk about class warfare. What was that one about? I do. And this is an episode that's probably a bit better known than the others that I've described so far. 1849 was the year in which Americans distinguished themselves for killing each other over Shakespeare. And I don't think that's happened in any other nation that I know of. And the precipitating event was a production of Macbeth at the Astor Place Opera House in Lower Manhattan, and really at the site right now of the public theater in Lower Manhattan. Hmm. And there was a profound disagreement between two great Shakespeare actors. One was William McCready, who was a British actor and very cerebral, very thoughtful, and he was the declared enemy of Edwin Forrest, who was one of the first great American actors and Shakespeare actors, and probably the first actor to be found with a pair of barbells at the foot of his bed when he was discovered in his deathbed. He was pumped up. He was virile. He was Jacksonian, if you will, and he just loathed MacReady. And he and his followers did not want MacReady playing Macbeth in New York. And what they did was they drummed up 10 to 15,000 supporters, working class, uh, heavily Irish, to storm the theater, stone the theater. And MacReady kept trying to play on and it got violent. The National Guard or the Civic Guard was called out. They fired on the crowd. They killed 20. They wounded 100 others. And uh, it looked like New York City was in for an extended period of violence and rioting at this time. And Shakespeare was at the heart of it. Differences about how he should be staged, who should perform him. And that was really incredible to investigate and to learn more about. Yeah. So why is Shakespeare, I mean, we probably all have vague answers to this. I'm wondering if you have one that's more uh, specific, but why Shakespeare? I mean, he was born centuries before America was even in existence. 
why not Homer or Plato or or a more recent writer like Emerson or Melville or or Walt Whitman or Emily Dickinson? You know, we have Tolstoy. There's there's other writers who have greatness who didn't achieve this kind of you know popular usage. Why do you think Shakespeare was resonating so much? I'll give you two reasons. One is that Shakespeare is writing in 1600 at a time when so many of the things that are central to our existence, the notion of the family, stable gender identity, uh, the political nation state, Mm -hmm. notions of racial difference are all being confronted and in a way codified for the first time. Mm -hmm. And we are heirs to those unresolved contradictions. Is it better to have what Shakespeare lived under, a monarchy, or is a republic or democracy an improvement on that form of government? Are Jews and blacks different than us? And if they are, in what ways? Again and again, the issues that we are still struggling to resolve Mm -hmm. are there. And I think Homer and Emily Dickinson, and I can name 20 other writers, would be wonderful models, but they are not playwrights. Mm. And the beauty of plays, especially Shakespeare's plays, rather than a more didactic playwright, Shakespeare's plays pit competing views against each other. Right. There are some people who read Julius Caesar as a play about the need, as John Wilkes Booth mentioned, to assassinate a proto-tyrant. And there are those who read it as the rise of tyranny. So Shakespeare's setting his plays on razor's edges, and he doesn't tilt one way or the other. And for that reason, it's so easy to mobilize his work on behalf of one view or the other, Mm -hmm. as plays Raelanus and Macbeth have long been appropriated. And there's a certain kind of openness that can be worked with so that a play like King Lear is not over time stable in meaning. Does King Lear do what he does because he's suffering from Alzheimer's or does he do it because he's becoming tyrannical? So it allows new generations of artists and students to stage and read these plays and argue about them. And we don't really have common ground any longer to argue with each other in this country. We could have polls, we could have votes, but we don't sit down across from each other and have something we can share. And right now, Shakespeare, although this is eroding a bit on the right, Shakespeare is still considered common property across the political spectrum. Mm. And mm-hmm. when no the case, I fear for our democracy. I'm kind of reminded of different political elections where in New Jersey, where both candidates would express their love of the music of Bruce Springsteen. And Bruce Springsteen, you know, on the one hand, he will sort of say, well, he he has a side and he would prefer that the other side not use his songs. But I also always kind of thought, you know, there is at least something valuable about being able to say, well, we at least have Bruce Springsteen in common. We both admire what he's saying, even if we interpret it in different ways. And then there's room to maybe have a discussion, but you at least come with this kind of shared ground of we both acknowledge that this is important and meaningful and speaks to us in some way. Yeah, that's a perfect example and exactly what I'm describing. Mm. So does Shakespeare help us find our way forward? Has he done this for Americans or does he illuminate the divisions and give present both sides? And then it's up to us to figure out where we go next. It's only up to us to decide, even in Shakespeare's own day, when he's writing for audiences that flock to the Globe Theater to see his plays. I don't think he was telling them what to do or what to think. He was telling them what they need to think about in terms of all the things that matter to us and still matter to us. 
So it's up to us. I think if my book shows anything, it shows many of the points where our nation went off the rails, killed presidents, erupted in violence in New York City, supported segregation and slavery. So I'd like to think that Shakespeare is a guiding light, but he wouldn't want to be seen that way. And I don't think I would want to see him that way. And I have to say, having taught his plays to students for most of my adult life, one of the most exciting things is seeing how the plays have changed from one generation of students to the next. Mm. How have they changed? Uh, I'll give you two examples. When I started teaching back in the 80s, and I would teach Julius Caesar, 80 or 90% of my students loved Brutus, who was leading the conspiracy to to squash a tyrannical Caesar. Mm-hmm. Not the other way entirely. 80 or 90% see him as a uh, a deluded academic type who doesn't see beyond his own situation and is the worst intellectualism and self-justification. And I would say an even better example is a play like As You Like It, which is about the slipperiness of gender in which you have a young male actor, a teenage boy who's playing Rosalind, dress as a girl, then dress as a boy. And the layers of, if you will, gendering are so powerful, but it's something that my students just get today, even as they get in like a poem that I teach, uh, The Rape of Lucrece, they get what it means to give sexual consent. And you ask them, you know, what does consent mean? And they can sound like Supreme Court judges, chapter and verse reciting precisely what that means. So even as our culture evolves, the plays come into greater focus for different generations in different ways. Mm. Those are great examples. And there's this tendency we have to think that we're the end of inevitable progress and that our reading is just going to be more sophisticated and better. And what those examples suggest is that it isn't so much that we're getting better at interpreting Shakespeare, but things are just different and we're just reflecting our era and the particular concerns and the particular approaches that we bring to the table when we read Shakespeare is what changes. I I think that's right. And, you know, I thought if I taught long enough, the pendulum would swing back and students would love Brutus again. Not in my lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you think that Shakespeare's importance and, and relevance, do you view it now as something that is on a trajectory and it's fading? Or do you view it as cyclical? Or how do, what has your, your long experience teaching Shakespeare suggested to you about the way in which Shakespeare is viewed by our society? I'm worried. Mm. Uh, the book ends with uh, a dark note. Uh, you, you would think that Shakespeare's contemporaries valued uh, what his plays did in illuminating their world for them. And yet, 20 years after Shakespeare's death, the theaters in which his plays were staged, the Globe included, were pulled down during a period of uh, of revolution and political turmoil in England. So it can end. It doesn't mean that it's going on forever. Yes, 90% of students who are in high school in America, the last time anybody checked, were reading Shakespeare. But if you look at the works that are being pulled from school libraries right now, Midsummer Night's Dream was recently pulled from a uh, a school district in Florida, I suppose on the grounds that it was somehow transgressive. When Midsummer Night's Dream is no longer to be found by uh, a kid looking for clarity and illumination in her life or his life, there's something rotten in the state of Florida and perhaps other states that are moving in this direction. Mm. It almost seems to another fear that I have is that 
as algorithms become kind of the driver of the entertainment that's served up on streaming services and and as Hollywood gets more and more cautious about putting out anything that's not a sequel or or an IP that's already familiar to people, that basically we end up serving up the familiar and what people have already experienced. And we're not giving the, there's not enough room for the new or the challenging or the something that that illuminates divisions as well as just the merely comforting and the familiar. And it, it seems like we're being trained in a sense to not be able to handle something like Shakespeare, where if what we're used to getting is things that are only going to deliver what we've already received and what we've already kind of checked on our list as something that we like, where's the room going to be for something where you could see both sides of an argument? Uh, That's beautifully put. And it does keep me awake at night. And I have to say, it doesn't have to be directly Shakespeare. It could Mm. be young artists working in film or music or other forms of popular entertainment that shaped by Shakespeare go on to create in other realms where the Shakespearean is not so visible, but it's part of that. And right now, Barbie is playing in movie theaters across the world and has earned over a billion dollars. And it warms my heart because its director, Greta Gerwig, sat in my Shakespeare class some Mm. years ago. And I hope imbibed a little of that gave her the confidence and the drive to accomplish what she has since done. So the society that invests in the arts is the society that's going to thrive. And the one that sees little value in them is going to become, to my mind, a deeply divided and vulnerable one. Okay, the book is called Shakespeare in a Divided America, What His Plays Tell Us About Our Past and Future. James Shapiro, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. It's been a pleasure. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Professor James Shapiro. Do check out his book and all his books. Really, they're all exceptional when you get the chance. Next week, we'll look at Ursula Parrott, someone you might not have heard of before, but trust me on this one, you will want to know more about her. A fascinating life right there in the jazz age alongside F. Scott Fitzgerald, a bestseller who used her celebrity well, if not always wisely. We'll have her biographer here to tell us all about it and her stunning novel, Ex-Wife, still pretty fresh today. Although also good for anyone looking to time travel back to the Roaring Twenties. And then we'll have Jazz Age Man himself, although he hated that term because he didn't really like jazz, apparently. Scott Fitzgerald. He's a trickier person to pin down than you might think. His new biographer is taking a crack at it, and we'll hear how that went. Ah, good week coming up. (laughs) I love the Twenties. Life is good, people. I'm glad you spent some of your time with me. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.